Mental health for a lot of children of migrants is something that you do not speak of. Being a part of the immigrant hustle means there's simply no opportunity to think about how you're feeling and coping with the impossible pressure of living up to other people's expectations and sacrifices. And if you do ever bring up mental health, it can be met with confusion apathy or a complete lack of understanding or willingness to understand. It's seen as weak and embarrassing and something that you should just get over. In this episode, I speak with PhD candidate Lovely Dizon about her research looking at the mental health of 1.5 generation Asian youth in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Lovely is passionate about amplifying and advocating for greater representation of ethnic minority voices and experiences, creating spaces for destigmatizing conversations around mental health, and improving access to health services. In our conversation, we explore the relationship between the mental health of Asian young people and their experiences as part of diasporic communities, and what we need to do to improve current healthcare systems and overall mental health support to meet their needs. Thank you, Lovely, for joining me um, and taking time out of your super busy teaching and doctorate schedule to talk to me about your work and everything that you're working towards. Um, Did you want to give a bit of a self-introduction to start off with? Yeah. So, yeah. um, Kia ora, kumusta. My name is Lovely. I'm in my final year of my PhD uh, at the School of Population Health here at the University of Auckland. I'm focusing on how we support 1.5 and second generation Southeast Asian uh, migrant adolescents as they negotiate their ethnic identity. So basically, how do we support these young people as they navigate what can be a really challenging experience, but also how do we celebrate them and highlight the strength and the beauty of what it means to be in that really special situation? Um, other things I do, I work as a research assistant for whoever will pay me uh, <laughs> within uh, the school and also in the School of Nursing. I tutor as well in undergraduate um, and work for a mentoring organization as a researcher and evaluator. Amazing. So that's kind of my professional stuff. Yeah. Awesome. And there's a lot there. I, I want to start though with like, wh- where did this all start? Like, is it inspired by your personal upbringing and background yeah absolutely I think I like to tell people that I fell into the space I did health sciences because I wanted to be a doctor like everyone else and then absolutely bombed my first year like most people do Um, and as I continued on with public health I realized that I really enjoyed it but I didn't know what I was going to do afterwards And so I got invited by one of my lecturers to do honours and kind of just fell into research. And I knew I wanted to do something with youth. And so I kind of thought about that. And the supervisor I had chosen was also doing Asian youth. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, why not? I was still at this stage where I wasn't very comfortable in my Asian ethnicity. So I felt kind of awkward about wanting to do Asian youth health but the more I got into it um the more I was like yeah actually this really resonates with my experiences the experiences of my friends and yeah so it comes from personal experience but there's also been a lot of unpacking of my personal experiences as I've continued through my PhD. Can you talk to me a bit about your um hesitation at first in terms of 
going down the path of like Asian health and Asian youth health? Yeah, well, I was, we moved to New Zealand in the late 90s, late 90s. And as a Filipino family, we were definitely one of the sort of firsts. Um, So now you can kind of see Filipinos everywhere, but it definitely wasn't like that growing up. And so while I lived in a really traditional household, I went to primary school in Wimuera, and then we moved on to Osirahanga. So it was, I really hated being Asian, actually. There was a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment about being Asian. And then when I went to high school, there wasn't really space to learn about my ethnic identity. And I went to a really like white, privileged high school and it was really just difficult. So I think when I came into uni, um, I never really thought of myself as Filipino enough. And so I sort of felt like, well, who am I to do Asian youth research if like, I'm still super embarrassed about being a Filipino, if I can't, you know, talk Tagalog very well at all. At that stage, we were barely going back to visit. Um, So it didn't feel like I was the right person for the job, I guess. Yeah. Mm. And how do you think that changed as you got more into your research? Um. I definitely think I'm still on that journey, but part of my research, I talked to Asian, it's like Southeast Asian, mostly Filipino young people. So this is kind of like kids in high school. And then I also talked to some sort of stakeholders. So people in organizations that were maybe youth oriented or something like that. And in talking to them, I realized that we were all kind of in that similar boat of not quite feeling you know, Asian enough or whatever, not quite feeling Kiwi enough, but we were all in it together. And that in and of itself is a really unique experience. And I think for me, it was personally really validating to hear that I wasn't alone in my experiences. And actually, yeah, and it was, if it isn't for like the support that I get from my supervisors, from my friends and my family to be like, yeah, you are the right person for this job. I definitely think that this space is a community effort. Like, I don't think you can do this stuff on your own. And it takes the right people. I think as I continued on in my PhD, I lost a few friends, but I also gained quite a lot in a really safe community where you could express those like insecurities about your identity. And you kind of realize that nobody knows what they're doing and everyone feels confused about their identity and that never goes away. And that's, mm. that's okay. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. We're all just muddling through it together. We're all just trying to figure it out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, through your work and research then, let's talk a bit about some of the biggest challenges then that you have found that youth experience or Asian youth experience in New Zealand healthcare. Yeah, well, I again, like research is interesting because it's very like nuanced and there's a lot of context that goes behind it. And I'm always a bit like hesitant to be like, this is what I found because I think youth research, the people that I get to surround myself with are really um, good at explaining context. And I think that's something I'm still learning. But from what I found in a few of the other projects I've been a part of that are like adjacent to my research is that Asian young people are, you know, they're doing okay, but there are Mm. some serious like mental health need and some other need that just aren't being addressed by the systems and the policies that we have in place that actually our Asian young people aren't doing as well as we think what they are. And it's really sad. 
Yeah, it it really is. Um, and there's also a lot to unpack in that. So there's mm. that perception, right, of young Asians or just Asian people in general just being, you know, high achieving and because of that they're doing well. Um, can you talk a bit more about that image? Yeah, so I probably you know about like the Asian, like the model minority myth and how we're always perceived to be doing better than other minorities. Um, But part of it, I think as well, is the narrative of not being able to share what you're going through. Like personally, I didn't really grow up in a house where, you know, we were taught like emotional intelligence or we're taught to share our feelings and, also part of like the immigrant hustle is that you got to put your head down and you just got to work. You've got to prove yourself. So you don't have time to be mentally ill. You just got to hustle through it. And I think what I noticed when I was talking to students and also talking to other like stakeholders who had like similar experiences is that we are so taught to just like hustle through that we don't ever get the opportunity to be like, oh, actually like maybe this isn't okay. Or maybe I'm not well and there's a lot of stigma around you know talking about your mental health I think within not just your community as in like the Asian community but also maybe within your workplace but also within like New Zealand culture and so there are all these really intersecting challenges right and I think what makes it a bit more challenging for for Asian young people again like generally speaking is that you, you know the sacrifices that your parents have made for you and you don't want to like dishonor them by being like this is the hardship I faced because we moved but also you want to highlight that actually things aren't okay and I think especially Asian young people really hold their parents and their parents experiences so closely like you know they want to make their parents proud they don't want to And I think it's more than just like not wanting to shame your parents or whatever, but it's that sense of like gratitude. And I think sometimes that can be perceived or misconstrued as like tiger parenting or whatever. But actually I think it's just, it's a cultural thing. Like we want, we know the sacrifices our parents have made for us. And as we get older, you know, that's more evident. And there's that real challenge of like, well, how do I address like my mental health need that's real? while not making my parents feel bad yeah. for the fact that I had to go through something. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's definitely resonates with me because that is definitely one of the sort of driving forces behind a lot of the decisions that I have made in my life as well. Um, and something that I often grappled with was like, at what point do you let this become something that you do out of guilt because of the experiences that your parents had to give you the life that you have now absolutely and it's such a challenge and I think and I and in fairness like I love my parents and they're amazing and my parents have also done a lot of really hard work in in their own lives to unpack their own experiences and that's been so pivotal to our relationship for them to recognize like yeah actually here are some of the things that in my desire to give you the best life you know I didn't always get it right and I think that takes such strength and courage especially from the backgrounds that we're from and it's such a like I'm so thankful that my parents 
um, uh, love us enough to do that hard stuff, even though it's so unfamiliar to them. And I think that's where a bit of the tension can be when parents aren't able to, for whatever reason, to kind of grapple with their own experiences for themselves. And then it kind of just perpetuates that cycle, which is yeah, yeah so yeah. hard to get out of. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of trauma as well tied in with that. Absolutely. Um, and I don't know if you see this amongst your students or your research often, but there's also sometimes that sort of almost expectation from the parents' side that their children will do X, Y, Z because they sacrificed A, B, C. Yeah, it's really funny. Well, not funny, haha. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes if my, my, my new phrase is like, if you don't laugh about it, you cry about it. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you do both. But in the interviews that I had, every single student talked about, you know, my parents want me to be doctor, lawyer, engineer. And that is part of the rhetoric. But what was really interesting to me that I noticed is that they often talked about it, not particularly from maybe their immediate pet, like their parents, but often it was like a familial expectation from that wider family. Maybe it's aunties or uncles. And that kind of expectation also varied if you had family that was predominantly based maybe here in New Zealand or family that was back home. And there's that tension of the way that your family is perceived if you are the ones who have moved away and that expectation can weigh really heavy as well so yeah I think it's so hard to figure out the line between guilt and and not and I don't think it's like a clear line because you know sometimes your parents will say something like I did all of this for you like and you're like okay thanks <laughs> and you know ask you to <laughs> yeah I mean I'm still here but you know like didn't get to choose to be here but also there are times where you know that they have hustled and yeah, I, I think it's always going to be really messy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like trying to strike that balance between like honoring everything your parents and your ancestors and your culture and heritage, but also trying to live your life as well. Yeah. yeah. And that's such a heavy thing for a young person. Mm. That's such a heavy burden to carry of the weight and the expectation of of your family to make it whatever making it looks like and I think I mean I'm not a psychologist or anything like that but I think some of that you know mental health like anxiety stuff comes from the fact that we're holding all of these things so heavy and there's not a space to talk about them there's not a space to share them to have like coping mechanisms that are healthy and culturally safe like, you know, they'll talk, you know, sometimes um, culturally safe care is something I really advocate for in my work because mm -hmm. you can't tell an Asian kid to just talk to their parents. Like, yeah, that's not. I'm going to get kicked out of my house. Like, <laughs> my parents are going to beat me. Like, <laughs> you know, like you can't, that's not how it works. And I think mm. That's when it's really hard when a young person is trying to get the care that they need and they eventually get enough courage to and then they're met with a system that does not cater for their needs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you give me some more examples of how our current system is just so just sort of Western focused? <laughs> Where do I start? I yeah. mean, we're not an Asian youth aren't in any policies for starters. We're often lumped in. And I know because I've had to read through a bunch of policies because that's my life now. 
you know, in, in education policies, we're lumped in with every other migrant community or refugee community, even though, funnily enough, the Asian experience is not homogenous and refugees and new migrants and second generation migrants have vastly different needs, but like, who knew? Um, <laughs> what so is that's probably, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, different people have different <laughs> needs. Um, so I definitely think that's one of the biggest things is that we're just not on the policy radar at all. Like, from what I know and from what I've looked at, and I could I could be wrong, but from what I've looked at, there aren't set cultural competency or cultural safety trainings for deans, for um, school counsellors, for school nurses. Um, I've yet to find really good training around cultural safety for the Asian population, for example. And obviously, as New Zealand gets more diverse, you're going to need more of those. And often the answer is like, hire more people that look like them. But that's not enough. Um, When I was talking to one of the stakeholders in my interviews, what was really stuck out to me, he's like, being from the same culture isn't enough. It's about being able to understand where you come from and what you bring to the table in order to meet, help that young person. And that requires not just an understanding of their culture and your culture, but also understanding the systems that are in place as well, which I think we miss as well. Um, Like, for example, if you are a second generation migrant, the chances that your parents understand how NCA works, like they might not get it. And so trying to communicate that can be really hard, but the counsellor might not know that your parents don't really understand and they might chalk it up to like language barriers, but it's probably a bit more complex than that. So those are the things that I can, and I mean, we don't have enough school counsellors. We don't have enough and we don't have enough good ones. You know, our teachers are underpaid. Everyone who does anything relatively meaningful is underpaid. And I think it's hard because the challenge I think we sit in as Asian researchers is that we want to fight for our Asian youth, but we know because of Te Tiriwa Waitangi and we want to honour the treaty that Māori do come first. And we're barely, we're not meeting the needs of, of Māori and Pacific. And it's sort of like, well, where do, where do we sit? Like how long do we have to wait? How bad does it have to get? And so I think there's a lot of those challenges, those real systemic challenges of just because we're not the most at need, we're often perceived as not having any need at all. And that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what direction do you think we need to be moving in order to make some of those changes? Um, I think realistically, like I, I do think having something like the Ministry of Ethnic Communities is a really great start. Um. But yeah, like having having representation of Asians in policies because not only are we not in youth policies, we're not in health policies, we're not like we're hardly in anything. Um, more, you know, more research to prove that you know there are these specific needs. Um, also, just understanding not just the health system has a big part to play with it, but also the school system has a huge a huge role to play with it. And, I mean, it makes sense, but also it doesn't, that the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Health don't always work, work together very well. But we spend the majority of our time in schools. And maybe it's changed now. I've been out of high school for, like, nine years. But, you know, there's no chance to explore your histories. And I know that's, you know, 
funding and everyone who's doing anything significant is often underpaid, but our schools need to do better as well. And it can seem really hopeless. And I think that's why I really enjoy about connecting with like community groups or individuals who are kind of on the ground meeting with young people or meeting with other Asians. And actually, you know, the community does some amazing work. And that's really, it gives a lot of hope to know that we're all kind of in it together. Um, It requires these grassroots things that it requires having cultural days at school it requires culturally safe care it's all of those things kind of together so while it seems like there's too much to do and there's always going to be too much to do I think um I think it's also nice to step back and be like actually something is happening and something is better than nothing even if it feels slow and frustrating yeah yeah but I think there's a challenge in that as well like this is kind of related, but no, I don't know if you've like on TikTok, but there's that one where they're like, you know, girl whose boyfriend does the bare minimum. And it's kind of like, do we, are we happy that we're getting something, even though that's the bare minimum? Or would we rather not have, you know, it's like, do we want bad representation? Because at least that's representation or not at all. And so I think there's also that to kind of hold in mind as well. I think there's huge harm in not recognizing the needs of these young people because you're telling them that they don't matter, that their needs don't matter, that their mental health doesn't matter, that their lives don't matter. And I think that's so, like, that's, yeah, that's damaging. Yeah, and isolating. Like, where do these young people or, like, who do they turn to or what do they do? That's the question. That's what I'm trying to advocate for is that we need supports in place and, um, the students that I talk to, they find ways. They have, you know, some are really fortunate to have teachers they can talk to. Some have really great parents. Some have siblings. Some have friends. Some do have counsellors that are really great. Some push through and find counsellors until they're great. But there's just, there's not supports in place. And I think something that I think about a lot is that it's not a young person's responsibility to seek that help out. It should be made available to them. Um, if you're hurting, you can't expect to be the person to like find the aid as well. And I think it it takes so much courage to be like, I need help and then not know where to go from there. So um, yeah, sometimes they don't have people to go through. And I think this idea of Asians you know the model minority myth of you know oh they're so resilient or they're so good and I think that's it's so damaging because it just perpetuates that desire to not want to say anything and that yeah is so harmful yeah definitely what other crucial things have you discovered through your research yeah people just want to be known Mm. They just want a space to talk about the good stuff and the hard stuff. And they just they just want to feel less alone. Like they're really not asking for much. And that's both really humbling and really frustrating that like they're really not asking for a lot and we still don't we still don't have things in place to give it to them. Um but I think 
young people these um, that makes me sound so old young people these days you're not even that old I know exactly that's why I was like oh my gosh but they're definitely they definitely have a greater sense of what they want they're way more politically engaged than I was and and we can talk about you know the reasons why are probably a whole nother conversation but it is just coming alongside them but they're also still kids and they deserve to be kids and they deserve to have people looking after them and keeping them safe and protecting them and hearing them and representing them like it's not just all on these young people um and I wanted to explore this sort of understanding of what mental health is as well I know it's not quite like your topic of research but it's just interesting hearing such common experiences of like young Asians not feeling like they can open up to their parents or their guardians about mental health because there's just such a disconnect between what mental health actually is like it doesn't even seem to be like a concept for Mm. like older generations Oh, yeah. And and uh, quite a few of the students to talk about that, like that struggle to communicate with parents because, yeah, the understanding isn't there. Or I think some of the students talked about and with a lot of empathy for their parents, like they were trying to put food on the table. They don't have time to think about their mental health. Like it just wasn't. And so I think there's that cyclical nature as well. And yeah, I think that's all rooted in, you know, where they've come from and the often the hardship they've had to experience in order to even be in New Zealand. Um, and I think, you know, migration can be really traumatizing and it's hard to it's hard to even know where to begin with that. And I think what can be really challenging is that, you know, parents will blame themselves and then it's like, well, okay, but it's not about you. And then, you know, like it just becomes really hard to And I think if a young person doesn't really have a good understanding or is learning about it themselves, it can be really hard to know how to communicate that to other people. Yeah. And I think parents as well, sometimes they don't really understand how destructive their handling of situations can be. Like if they're really dismissive of their kids' mental health problems or not recognizing them, um, it can really drive people away yeah yeah and I think that's why it's so crucial and it's it's in other literature as well about lots of other things to do with young people to have someone an older supportive adult who is not maybe in their immediate family so whether that's a teacher a mentor a friend a youth leader or whatever just to have that point of connection with somebody and that's what was really hard for me personally like because of the different circumstances that we were in, I never really had anyone who was older than me that I could look up to. So I really had to kind of figure it all out on my own. And it was so goddamn hard. Like, yeah, I have a younger brother and he's 16 and I'm like, bro, you're so blessed with me. (laughs) Like the amount of times he's called me and he's been like, Hey, can you talk to mom and dad about this thing? And you know, like he has his own set of issues with, you know, like we all do with with our parents, but he, you know, and a lot of the students that I've talked to, they have those siblings that they can rely on to kind of help with their parents or just even understand the family dynamic. So it is really crucial for these young people to have that, but a lot of them don't and they don't know where to look for them. They don't know where to find them. And it's, yeah. 
Well, speaking from your personal experience, then how did you find help or support or answers? <laughs> um, I don't know. I actually I found a lot of it in reading, like in in reading books about people who are like me. Um, so one of the first books I read that was based on like Asian American experiences was Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ning. And it's about an Asian American family. And it was the first time where I could see myself in, in books. And that's kind of, yeah, so there was that. Um, I went to counseling. I started going to counseling at 21 for, well, actually it was for a breakup, hilariously enough, but and haven't stopped going and kind of through that. But actually a lot of it was the stuff I was confronted with with my PhD. I often joke about um, my PhD being therapy for what I went through in high school that I then go to therapy for. Um, so I've been really fortunate to have a really culturally safe counsellor and that has really helped. But a lot of it also has just been finding really good community of people who have gone through, like I have, she's not my biological auntie, but I have an auntie who's been amazing and really supportive through the process. And, you know, I have some friends who are Asian, some that aren't, that are just really safe to talk to about those things. And so, yeah, definitely community, but it's hard, man. It's so hard to figure it out. And that constant kind of like, you kind of want to be, you know, you're taught to be like self-compassionate, but also you're like, can I be done now? Mm, <laughs> so it, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. definitely, it's definitely challenging. Do you come across, um, and I'm not sure where this folds in, but just the whole, you know, navigating the space between very different cultures, like does that play a lot into young people's like cultural identities or like mental health struggles? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think that's why I chose to focus on 1.5 and second generation. Like I'm 1.5 myself. We moved here to New Zealand when I was two and a half. Um, but I think a lot of it comes from that place of not feeling understood within your Asian culture, but also not being understood in Kiwi culture. Like I remember being so confused because as I was getting older, the experiences that, you know, the European kids in my classes were having, like having their own car at 17 or being able to go on holiday with their boyfriends at 18. Like I was like, what the? Like, or even like calling their parents by their first names and just like the relationships that my um, like Kiwi like friends and people from school had to their parents were so different from mine. And, and that was just really confusing and you almost feel like, and then you kind of end up like gaslighting yourself. It's like, oh, well, maybe like, maybe it's all just in my head, especially if you don't have anyone. Like I didn't have any, hardly any Asian friends growing up because in Otarahanga there wasn't anyone. And then at the school that I went to, even though I had like a diverse group of friends, none of us were encouraged to be like close to our cultures. So all of us were pretty like disconnected from our cultures. So you just constantly feel like you don't fit anywhere. And that obviously leaves you feeling super lonely, super anxious and I remember times that I tried to express like I was going through something it would often be like minimized or misunderstood and you just don't want to get help after that and it wasn't from 
the Asian families half the time. It was from the systems that were in place, the youth leaders that I had that just didn't have the understanding of what I was going through. I would describe high school as just such an ice and even like my undergrad as just a really isolating experience. And you have to pretend like you're okay as well, which is even harder because I don't know if it's the same for all Asian parents and Asian families. Like there's not only do you have to be okay, you have to act like you're okay when you're not okay. Um, You know, just smile, like just push through. So even if you're like dying on the inside, you still have to look and be a certain way. And, oh, God, it's so hard. Also, I feel a little bit of, um, like I know our parents and previous generations have been through a lot themselves but it's almost like that sort of tough love approach just doesn't work with people and like does there need to be more understanding and sympathy and a different approach from that side too yeah and I think I I sort of talked about it earlier and I'm really thankful that my parents um love my brother and I love themselves enough to be like actually not everything we were raised with was helpful and it's been really like such a blessing that in the last especially as I started my PhD I started opening up a little bit more and also was diagnosed with mental health stuff so we really had to come face to face with it Um, they've been willing to put themselves on a journey to be like actually like maybe yelling at her and asking her all the time what makes her anxious isn't going to be the best approach and maybe maybe we should do something else and I also yeah like we we do need to I don't want to say educate parents because that sounds really patronizing but we do need to extend the same amount of sympathy and empathy to them as well and I think telling parents that they need to do better is awesome but again if we don't have the right systems in place then it just perpetuates that cycle even more like a lot of the parenting programs are Western, so why would they want to go there? A lot of them are run by like young people. Older parents aren't going to want to go there. We need to extend as much love and grace to the older community and hope that that empathy can kind of bring them down because I think it's really easy to be. I mean, I'm not a parent, but I could imagine if someone was telling you that maybe you were parenting right, that you'd get pretty defensive. And so if it comes from that place of like, you need to be better. It's like, well, they're just, we're just doing the same thing that they're doing to us. So something really needs to shift and change there. And I don't know what that looks like, but um, yeah, we definitely, there definitely needs to be the different ways that we communicate as parent and child and as professional and parent. But I, yeah, that's a whole nother huge systemic shift as well. And and I think to some extent, like when it gets that big, I also like to think about the community things. I think about the conversations my parents can now have with their friends and they can do it a different way. And, you know, obviously I toot my own horn about my parents, but my partner is Asian as well. And his parents, like they do an amazing job in certain areas and have really shifted the way that they've communicated and I'm like oh that's so awesome and I think that's also another thing like we want to change the narrative to not just understanding the strengths and the needs but just that complexity of like you know Asian young people go through a whole lot and their parents and their families go through a whole lot and 
we need to be equally recognizing of the needs and the struggles, but also like the good stuff as well. And that's really hard, right? Yeah, for sure. It's so complex, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to add on top of that? All of that. It's a lot. It is. It's a lot. And it's a lot to carry. And it's a, and I think it's cool to know that in this work that we're not alone. Like my supervisor has hustled for this mahi for so long and her supervisors before that. And sometimes it doesn't feel like enough, but if it wasn't for Shanti, if it wasn't for like Rashini who have hustled so hard, we wouldn't be where we are. And so I think there is hope that things are happening. And I think that's a one of the things I love about being Asian, that it is that collective effort and that recognition, like, my supervisor, she's Shri Lanka, and she always used to be like, lovely, go home, like at six o'clock, go home. And I'm like, well, you're going to work this weekend. And I used to joke about it. <laughs> she said this thing to me in my first year where she was like, lovely, we work this hard so one day you won't have to. And I was like, cool. Oh, right in the heart. Yeah. In the okay. Can't make fun of you anymore. <laughs> but like, that's the thing, right? And and I think in all of the like shittiness of the space and all the struggle, like there is also so much beauty and it's such an honor to be an Asian here in New Zealand and we do stand on the shoulders of giants and regardless of what our parents have or have not done what our grandparents have or have not done to an extent we do have the capacity to choose what stops with us yeah and to choose how to make things better so there is hope even if it seems like there's not (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think it just takes consistent effort right like it's just constant uphill yeah and to quote quote my favorite movie high school musical we're all all in this together like it's not just you know the dance moves (laughs) sorry absolutely Honestly, 10 years old, I had a high school musical party. I literally remember when the dance along came on, I was like in the back of our shitty ass land when we were like hustling. Um, I think my parents probably still remember those movies because I played it all the time. Um, oh, so funny. But we are, we're like, we're all in this together. Like it's not just on researchers, it's on, it's on the teachers who get to change the narrative. And I'm really like honoring of that because my partner's a primary school teacher and honestly the stuff he has to deal with is insane as a male south asian teacher who teaches five and six year olds like the stuff he has to go through is like could not i can't you know if everyone does their little bit whether it's on these sort of more public platforms or whether it's just within your communities like calling out your friend for being racist and it isn't just on asians i think as well and like I love to shout out like one of my best friends, Hannah, and we've been friends since high school and I tell her all the time, I'm so thankful that she's, so she's Pakiha and she's a doctor and the way that she has welcomed my culture so wholeheartedly, she loves our food, she loves my parents and she's always been so honouring of my experiences and also honouring in the fact that she knows she'll never fully understand my experiences. Like we need more people like that as well and it's not just on Asians to fix the world it's all of us together and actually like unfortunately I have lost like relationships and friends because they're not willing to see the privilege that they have and I can no longer sit in comfort in that if I know that they think my experiences are somehow invalid um and it and it does take hard work to recognize your privilege but you have to do that work and that is on 
and it is on you to do it. You don't ask for emotional labor from your minoritized friends. Read, do the work. Like it's hard, but it's harder for the people who it's affecting. Yeah, Um, totally. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing um, everything that you have been researching and learning. And um, yeah, it's always important to talk about these kinds of issues. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you for this platform. I think it's so, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that young people are hoping for and looking for. So I know that this isn't your full-time mahi. So yeah, thank you. And it's it's such an honor to be a part of it. So thank thank you you. so much. Thank you so much for listening and thank you, lovely, for the fascinating and nuanced conversation. If you want to support and follow her work, Lovely runs an account on Instagram that aims to amplify the voices of Asians in Aotearoa, which you can follow at amplify.nz. And if you enjoyed this episode, remember to rate, review, subscribe and share. Your support is invaluable to the show.